Hello there. Dr. Neil Buttery here, and welcome to the British Food History Podcast. It's the penultimate episode of the season already, and we are carrying on our weird history of eels by looking at adult eels. Yes, our little elvers from last week have all grown up. I'll be looking at the folklore surrounding adult eels, as well as how they were caught and cooked. And I'll be talking to my guest this week, John Wyatt Greenlee, about the importance of eel in the Middle Ages and the early modern period. But first, let's have a little look at the natural history of the eel. Eels are weird and creepy until you get to know them. Like most things in ecology and natural history, you only really start to like them when you get to know how they fit into their habitats and see their roles. See also house spiders. But if you look carefully when you're walking by a clear river or stream, you might be lucky... You might spot an adult eel hiding in the shadows of an overhang or bridge. It's unlikely though because they're generally a nocturnal fish, but I have spotted a couple in the daytime. If you really want to see one, plop in some rotting meat or hang some from a bridge. The eels will be tempted out from their roots and stones and they'll come and have a gander. The rotting meat works because they are scavengers and opportunists of freshwater habitats, clearing rivers and streams of dead and decaying animals like a big long slimy hoover. But they also have a penchant for the little fish, including stockfish, and they used to be viewed as pests by many. One of the creepiest things eels do is that they can climb out of water, and they can live very happily for several hours in the open air. So if an adult eel decides to move out of its section of stream, it can up sticks and move from river to river on dark wet nights. It must be very disconcerting to spot one whilst walking the dog. But they used to be all over the place, especially in the south of England, before the fens and similarly marshy places were drained, and it was much more boggy than it is today. Because they lurk around in the dark, a lot of folklore has built up around eels, some of its positive and some of its negative. The ancient Egyptians worshipped the eel. Only priests could eat it. In Ireland, however... Eels were harbingers of famine, especially when they started to whistle, which as far as I know, they don't actually do. And when they grew very large, like eels can do, they became something called the Dorohow, a mythical creature that dragged livestock and people to a watery grave. More typically though, adults usually grow to about a metre in length, but there is no maximum size, they just keep on growing and growing, and there are stories of huge ones. The oldest wild eel ever caught was 85 years old. I do not know how long it was, but here's an extract from the journal of a Scottish parson from the 19th century. His name was Alexander Campbell, and he moved to the Hebrides. And when he got there, he chatted to some of the natives. This is what he wrote about it. Another prominent feature is its innumerable lakes teeming with eels that attain an almost incredible size. These eels, when they arrive at this monstrous size, according to the opinion and also conviction of the natives, make their way over land to the sea. And I have reason to believe that this opinion of theirs will be found to be correct. I myself for some years was an eyewitness to one of these huge monsters appearing in a lake, lashing at times furiously the water with its tail and making a hissing sort of noise. There it is, like the hissing or whistling again. But for the last three years it has left the lake and it is not now to be seen. Its disappearance was no matter of surprise to the inhabitants, because they expect all monster eels of this description to make their way to the sea. 
And because of this idea, some people actually think that the Loch Ness Monster could be one of these giant eels. <laughs> okay, that might be a bit far-fetched, but listen to this newspaper report from the Hull Packet on the 6th of November, 1840. A Monster of the Thames. On Friday afternoon, one of the largest river Thames has ever seen was caught in the city canal. Three boys who were on the spot, seeing a large portion of the mud agitated, went down to discover the cause, when, to their astonishment, they saw what at first they took to be a snake, but which proved to be an enormous eel of the thickness of a man's thigh and about fifteen feet long. The boys, after a long and arduous struggle, succeeded in drawing their captive ashore, which they subsequently sold for thirty-two shillings to an individual who, it was said, intended to exhibit it. As a proof of the immense size of the monster, it was weighed and found to exceed 63 pounds. That's 28 and a half kilos. I'm not sure if I'm doing a very good job of making them sound less creepy, to be honest, am I? I think now it's a good time to look at just how important eels were to the people of Britain, indeed the whole of Europe, in medieval times and the early modern period. Eels were one of the most common foods in medieval times. House accounts mention eels over any other fish. Many East Anglian fortunes were built upon eels sold, literally by the cartload, to London. And eels and elvers were big money. Well, in fact, from the point of view of eels, very literally so. They were used as a form of currency in medieval Britain. To find out more about this, I spoke to historian John Wyatt Greenlee, who spends much of his time looking into the history of the eel in Britain, especially during the Middle Ages. It was a really good chat, I think you're really going to love it. We discussed, amongst other things, how one gets into studying such a niche subject, Dutch eel ships, ships that are full of water and eels, eels religion and Lent, eels as a form of currency, and how to catch eels the medieval way. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much, John, for joining me on the podcast today. Before we start talking about medieval eels as a thing, it's a very niche subject. How did you get interested in medieval eels? Was it via eels or was it the medieval that got you in in the first place? A little bit the medieval. Mm -hmm. So I wound up working with eels quite by accident, really. I am by sort of initial training, a cartographic and map historian. And uh, for completely non-eel related issues, I was looking at maps of London from the 17th century. And I noticed these Dutch eel ships on these maps of London. And I was curious about why they were there. Because everything else on these maps that had a label, was, the ships were labeled. And everything else on the mm -hmm. maps that had a label was something big and monumental, like the Tower of London or the Globe Theater that couldn't like, up anchor and leave. So the ships sort of stood out as being a really sort of different thing on the map. And those are the things that as a historian catch your attention. So I started asking, well, why are those ships there? And trying to unravel that question, it seemed like it should be a pretty easy answer to find and then it wasn't like five years later i'm still working with eels <laughs> so the eels pop up on these essentially these drawings of the thames why are we looking at those pictures etchings for cartographical reasons i was i was initially i was curious about differences in representation of of london spaces before and after the great fire so how the, how the city gets mapped before and then there's this really interesting period right after the fire where there's a bunch of sort of proposed sort of more modern street plans for the city mm -hmm. that they then don't adapt mostly because mostly for sort of to get people back into the city and get the city back on its feet as quickly as possible. But, uh, so, so I was just kind of, I was curious about the sort of comparisons and then I got distracted by the eels. Yes, as one does. I've been distracted by eels many times. Yeah, and I keep going back to them 
every time. There's something very um, charismatic about a weird, slimy thing. I don't know what it is. They're, they're fascinating. One of the things that really kept my attention is that the more questions that I asked, the more questions I had. And the, the more, the closer I looked, especially at British history, the more eels seem to be sort of everywhere. They're in mm -hmm. the art and in the economy and the language and always sort of in the background, but they're there all the time. And I just kept, sort of kept finding them and finding them and finding them. And then at some point I looked around and realized that I wasn't writing, a, this was from my, my doctoral dissertation, realized I wasn't writing a, a sort of spatial or cartographic dissertation anymore. I was just writing about eels. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> and what did your supervisor think of that? <laughs> you know, they were really very um, flexible. Oh, good. Um, they're, they're, they're pretty flexible with me. I, you know, I had a meeting with them when I was about 120 pages into the thing, and it was all about eels. That was supposed to be like the background chapter that got into talking about issues of, of space and identity building using maps. Um, sure. I was going to talk about the eels as a way to getting into that. And then it was just like, like okay, I can, I can do this in 30 or 40 pages, this background. It just kept going and going and going. And so I came to them with 120 pages of just eels. And it's like, look, there's more. <laughs> and I think this is where the dissertation is. So. Um, no, they were, they were pretty flexible with it. I think they enjoyed the, the process. None of them knew anything about eels at all. So they enjoyed the learning. So I guess the first thing you had to find out was, well, it's the first thing that I thought of anyway, was how does an eel ship work? How is it even a thing? It's very bizarre to think of a ship or fish. Yeah. And like I said, that's the thing that caught my attention. There's these two ships on these maps, the, the Thames labeled eel ships. Like what, what is an eel ship? What, what does that even mean? But they're, they're fascinating. The, the, the Dutch really were the primary users of them and they're uh they're a well ship um in the hold of the ship there's basically it's basically a big tank with holes in the side of the ships either a bunch of really small holes or some larger holes that have screens over them mm -hmm. um and this lets you get sort of water circulation through the tank in the ship without having the eels escape right okay the Dutch used water ships uh, a lot. They were a really common sort of early modern Dutch ship and they used them for a lot of inland inland trading and they used them for taking water um, out to like big tanks of water out to sailing ships and things like that. But they also use them for bringing eels across to, to sail in London. And you can do this because eels can make a transition between fresh and salt water um, and back again mm -hmm. um, in a way that most fish can't. And so you can put them in the ships in freshwater in Holland, take them across the channel through uh, with a little bit of transition time and then back into the fresh water of the, the Thames. Um, and it, that doesn't work for, you can't do that for most fish. Right. Do you know what? I just assumed that they were going the other way. No, in, in fact, um, the English were uh, almost never exported. They didn't export many fish at all, but they never exported eels. The eels were almost entirely a, an import issue. So the, the Dutch were, uh, were, were catching eels initially in sort of in their own sort of swamps and lowlands. And then uh, as they started draining those, um, they did, the Dutch did a lot of fishing um, in Danish waters. And then they would sell those eels all over the continent, actually. But uh, the pretty big part of the trade was bringing eels to London. Right. I just immediately extrapolated to the modern day where I know glass eels exported there. So yeah, I just made, I just carried that assumption and took it backwards. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the, the Dutch developed a real sort of stranglehold on eel imports into, into London, largely because nobody else knew how to make these ships. There's some interesting records. In the 17th century, the king had an, an eel procurer who 
had to ask permission to go to Holland to buy a couple of these ships because he said nobody in England knows how to make them and we haven't for years. So the, the Dutch were about the only people that knew how to transport eels, live eels in large numbers. Right. There was an inland trade in England in eels uh, and some of it was in live eels because you can they can live out of water for a while so you can pack them in a barrel. If you pack them sort of between layers of wet moss or hay, they can they can stay alive for a while. Uh, but a lot of the inland trade in England was in uh, preserved eels. And it turns out as London, I think, grew and, and grew in the 16th and 17th centuries, especially, uh, you get a lot of people coming in from the countryside who are used to eating a lot of fresh eels. Mm-hmm. And I think the sort of increased demand for, for fresh eels in London really benefited the Dutch, who were, like I said, about the only people who knew how to, to transport them live in volume. And it's hard to kind of overplay the importance of eels, isn't it, really, to everybody in Europe, everybody was eating them. What's so great about eels? That is an interesting question. Um, you know, at, at this point, we don't eat a lot of eels, at least especially in the United States, where I live. We almost almost none outside of the a few in, that we'll eat in in, uh, in Japanese food, mm-hmm. uh, unagi and such. But they were a really big part of the diet in, in pre-modern England, especially. And first off, I think you can tell from the records that they liked the way they tasted. Most of the, most people really enjoyed the way eels tasted. There's a bunch of things that eels have going for them as a as a food. First off, they are really high in fat and protein, which makes them a, a good staple food. And they are the population has really crashed at this point. Uh, we don't have nearly as many eels as we used sure. to, but they were just tremendously abundant. It's a sort of relatively easy to get, fairly cheap, really good source of protein mm-hmm. and and fat and that speaks well for them. And moreover, they were in medieval England and actually after the Reformation, fish days were a really important part of the sort of cultural economy. So Indeed. sort of the high middle ages, about a third of the year, you weren't supposed to eat meat. Um, you're supposed to eat fish of some sort. And fish has a medieval fish has a really broad definition. It can mean a whole bunch of things, including things we wouldn't think of, like beaver tails and things like that. Yes, but, indeed. Porpoise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, fish is anything that's not walking around on four hooves kind of yeah if it so much as dips a toe in the water it's a fish <laughs> yeah so so eels sort of eels answered that bell as as well they were uh they're a fish they were really common and in pre-reformation or post-reformation in england they kept the fish days because uh not because of uh religious conviction but because of economic reasons that there was a real concern that if they people stop eating fish on these fish days mm-hmm. that uh the a big part of the economy all, all the, the fishermen and the fishmongers would go out of business um and so even after the reformation in england fish days were enforced by law so actually somewhat more vigorously than they were before the reformation so you can eat a whole lot of different fish for fish days but eels are particularly good theologically which is a bit weird because the reason you're not supposed to eat meat on mm-hmm on these fish days is because they're, they remind you of sex. Meat, meat reminds you of sex because it's from an animal that reproduces sexually. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But right. But the medieval conception of eels is that they reproduced asexually. They don't have anything at all to do with sex because eels have this interesting life cycle where, you know, where they're born in the Sargasso Sea and they come to, to land. And then uh, for almost their entire lives on land, they're juveniles with, without re- sort of developed reproductive organs. And those only develop right before they go out to sea to mate and die. And so in the sort of classical view and in the medieval view, sort of looking at eels and thinking, well, we never see them reproduce. They just sort of appear and they don't have any reproductive organs. Um, you know, Aristotle dissected a bunch of eels and, and sort of came to that conclusion and people sort of followed from him for several thousand years. So in addition to being plentiful and cheap and 
for protein, they also don't have anything at all to do with sex. So they've got quite a lot going for them as a, as a food state. And that meant everybody could heartily took in because they were a bit of a leveler. Well, you know, everybody was eating them. It wasn't like, um, you know, uh, game fish in, you know, various members of the gentry's ponds. It was something that everybody could have, wasn't it? Absolutely. And it's one of the really fascinating things about them is that they are, eels are a, a food that show up in, you know, in really poor people's houses and in monasteries and in aristocratic, you know, receipts. We, we can see that they're ordering a bunch of eels and kings, English kings ordered eels for feasts on a pretty regular basis and in really large numbers, um, 10, 20, 30,000 eels at a time for, for Christmas feasts or things like that. So yeah, it was a, it was a food that up through the seventy, like the end of the 17th century, just about everybody ate, and I, I think that it formed that eels sort of formed a really interesting and integral part of the English sense of identity over that period. Um, that because it's a food that everybody's eating, and because it's um, until they have to start importing a lot of them from the Dutch, it's a it's a sort of a really native food too. Uh, that there's a bit of, of English pre-modern identity that gets wrapped up in, in eels and eel eating. Yeah, it's bizarre. And it's just completely disappeared now, apart from a few niche people that eat jellied eels. And that's the one form of eel that I can't abide. So there's a there's an interesting moment at the end of the 17th century where, or the, sort of the middle, where so we're talking about these Dutch eel ships on the Thames. And they show up on maps starting in about 1600. Um, but they've been there for, I mean, they're trading eels since at least the like 1450s. But uh, middle part of the 17th century, there's a lot of tension between the English and the Dutch, several series of wars, and this Dutch eel ships get caught up in this in these conflicts, and they get kicked off the Thames for about 15 years, right. um, between 1666 and 1681. And they wind up getting invited back. There's a series of petitions to Parliament saying basically, like, we can't supply enough fields on our own. We just can't do it. We need the Dutch back. Um, and so they get invited back in exemption to a, a tariff policy. And then they stay there. That period of 15 years, I think, marks a really interesting break where the ships come back after that. Up to that point, you see a lot of eels in metaphors and art and sort of cultural references, and you don't after that point. And prior to that, everybody ate eels. And I think over the course of that 15 years, there's a transition that happens where people who can sort of move away from eels as a, as a thing. And they become, after after the ships come back, sort of starting in the, the 18th century, basically, eels really become a much more sort of a poor person's food. They're, they're not a food that kings order by the tens of thousands anymore. They're not a food that shows up in, in uh, metaphor and plays and things. Like there's, at the beginning of the 17th century, there's, there's eels and metaphors in Shakespeare and, and, and Johnson and all kinds of, of, of places. And those sort of things just disappear over the next 100 years. I think that's where we, we, we see that shift. There's a moment in the beginning of the 20th century where, maybe the 1920s, where hot smoke eels was a thing that was really popular with everybody, uh, where it said they developed a hot smoking process. Uh, but then that went away again pretty quickly too. Oh, that's and, a shame. Yeah. At, at this point, you know, yeah, sort of jelly eels is... As much as anything, and I may be wrong about this, but as anything, I feel like it's kind of a, a, a point for tourism. Like it's a it's a thing that's associated with the East End of London, mm -hmm. and lots you know people still eat them, but it's it's more a, a sort of a historical callback than anything else. I think it's a, it feels like it to me. Yes, indeed. But the 20th century is a little bit out of my ballpark. I'm a medievalist. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, we'll go we'll go backwards. Um, I wanted to ask actually. So um, so pr prior to the sort of mid 17th century, eels are that numerous and desired, I suppose, that they become a form of currency, don't they? 
Yeah, by the time you get to the 17th century, that there are very few instances of this anymore. But in the early medieval period, there are a lot of people paying rent in eels um, in England and in other places as well. My research mostly focuses on England, mm -hmm. so it's mostly what I talk about. We, the earliest records we have are from the 10th century, and what's part of a lot of what's going on is that there are there's very few coins sort of circulating. There's, there's very few hard, very little hard currency. And so if you're a landlord and you want to collect rent from your, your tenants, you tend to do it in terms of, uh, of in-kind rent. So you may collect grain or honey or eels. And eels are by far the most common of these in-kind rents, partly because a lot of the landlords are, are monastic and monasteries are big on, on, on eating a lot of fish. But at the end of the at the end of the 11th century, so including the 1086 Doomsday Survey mm -hmm. and some other things, I have records of about 540,000 eels being paid in rent every year in England to, to various landlords. Okay. So like more than half a million. And that's, I know that that number is, is underselling it because the Doomsday Survey doesn't include a bunch of places. And, you know, the thing about in-kind rents like eel rents is they often only appear in records when they are initiated or uh, changed or sort of ended. I see. And if one of those gets lost, then you don't know kind of like if, if the record of when the rent is initiated gets lost, then we can only see it when it ends. And I have a whole bunch of those where like I have records of a rent ending and I have no idea when it started. So yeah, there's a, there's a really big trade in eel rents, so people paying their rent in eels. And these are preserved eels, mostly, almost entirely they're preserved eels. So they're caught okay. uh, in the they're caught in the fall mostly. Um, so they're silver eels, they're caught in the fall when they're, as they're migrating downstream. Um, and then preserved or the cold smoking process that uh, sort of salted and cold smoke takes a couple of months. And most of the time these rents were paid at the start of Lent. Makes sense. 40 days of, of, of fasting, we're not supposed to eat any meat at all. So they'd sort of truck up to their monastery with their 5,000 eels or 10,000 eels or however many right. they, they owed. You know, the, the numbers we're talking about, the single largest rent in the Doomsday Book I'm blanking on the, the the town that's a little near Lincoln with seventy five thousand eels. It was due to the Earl of Chester every year. These eels are being caught in industrial scale amounts. What was the popular methods of catching eels? I know they're like rotten corpses. So if you want to catch one eel, you might kind of use a, a dead chicken or something to to lure them lure them out. But for twenty five thousand, you're going to have to do better than that, I assume. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that is one method of catching eels is to throw a rotting thing into the water and let them sort of chew on it and pull them back out. That um, you know, there's that scene from the Ten Drum, yes, where they is. use a, a horse's head for that. Yes, and that uh, that's one of the ways that people today get exposed to eels, and it traumatizes a whole I lot think, of people. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is fairly traumatizing, isn't it? So you can do that, yeah, but that doesn't get you a ton of eels. So uh, the but the method for catching eels hasn't changed a whole lot between where we are now and a thousand plus years ago. At that kind of scale, you use a lot of net systems, right? You use a lot of spike nets and and uh, sort of funneling eels into the, or, or baskets they can get into and can't get back out of. Mm -hmm. Mostly that's passive, right? So you're you're setting those nets up and you're going away and coming back the next morning and, and seeing which eels, how many eels you, you got out of your net. Sometimes they would uh, drive eels into the nets. There's a couple of references, a reference in Chaucer towards the end of the House of Fame where he talks about people chasing around after after rumors, like after secrets, basically. Like he says, it's like people stomping after eels. Oh, okay. So he's trying to invoke this sense of like enthusiasm and, and 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 rush and hurry. And what he's talking about are people getting together and like stomping up a creek or a body of water 
and driving the eels up towards nets. Right. So you can use nets in a, in a sort of more active way, or you can do it passively. You can also fish eels by line or by spear. You know, in the in the winter they, they hibernate, and so if you want to catch eels in the winter, you have to you have to sort of spear them down in the mud. Historically, eels have made up just an enormous amount of the fish biomass in downstream sections of rivers, as much as 25 to 40 or 50 percent of rivers in in Europe. Ridiculous numbers, and it's really hard to, to comprehend um, them being sort of that big a part of the ecosystem. But it seems like they were, and it's one of the you know they're critically endangered at this point, um, which is bad for them. But that also means if you sort of project that out, that it's that that's really problematic for the for the you know, for the river systems that they they historically been a part of, because that's just a huge part of the, the ecology that's gone missing. Well, um, it's time to wrap up now, John. Thank you very much for sparing the time to speak to me. I just wanted to ask before you go, is there uh, anything else on the horizon with your uh, medieval eel research, anything for us to look out for in the next couple of months? Um, so not... Not imminently. I do eel tweets every day, so I'll keep doing that. And Good. I've started to work on sort of turning the dissertation into a book and finding a home for that. So hopefully in the next year or so, we'll see some movement on that. But that's not going to be that's not going to be imminent. That's that's kind of what I've got right now. Hey, the, the, the Twitter account's good enough. It's a very entertaining Twitter account. People need to make sure they uh, hunt it out. I've been really surprised by the interest that it's gotten, but it's um, I. It, it's nice. It's it's nice to to have a space. You know, eels need all the friends they can get, and it's nice to have a space where I can sort of get people interested. In. No, they absolutely they absolutely do. It's a message that uh, we need to get across. They're an important animal historically, but they're an important animal today. And to save eels, they're a bit of an umbrella species. If you're saving the eels, then you're saving dozens or even hundreds of other species uh, as well. So yeah, they're extremely important. They are. And, you know, it's one of the, the things I've really come to value about the the work that I've done with eels is I think um, it's not always the case that as a medievalist, you get to do work that has repercussions in the modern world. And, you know, one of the things I think that I can really contribute with, with my work is that it's sometimes hard to get people interested in saving eels because they're not cute and they're yes. not majestic. They're sort of slimy and gross and and they remind us of snakes, and that's just weird. But I've sort of felt like if I can tell an interesting story about the way that our paths are intertwined with eels in a way that maybe we hadn't thought about, that it's a it's the means of getting people thinking about the fish in a more positive light, um, and then sort of from there thinking like, okay, well, if they're a part of our past, maybe we really ought to work on making sure that they're a part of our future as well. Thank you very much to John Wyatt Greenlee. I'd just like to mention again his excellent Twitter account. It's very entertaining and there are more eel memes than you could possibly imagine. If you liked our chat and you want to know a little bit more, there's a couple of Easter eggs on the website. We talk more about eel rents and why they began to diminish and the death of King Henry I who infamously died of a surfeit of eels. In fact, his is not the only notable eel-related death but I shall say no more. To access my Easter eggs and other premium content, go to britishfoodhistory.com, click on the support the podcast and blogs tab, and start up a subscription for just £3 a month. Oh, before I forget to mention it, there will be a link in the show notes to that infamous clip from the tin drum that we mentioned, but it is not for the squeamish you have been warned. 
So we chat a little bit there about how eels were caught. Let's have a look at them in the kitchen. Well, first of all, it's worth mentioning that there was a seasonal product, a bit like Elvers. They were caught in large numbers just as they were starting their migration back down the rivers, all fattened up for their journey back to the Sargasso Sea. That's something like 28-30% fat, so you can see why they were an important food source. When eels are hanging about in rivers and lakes just getting fat, they're yellow eels. But when it's time to migrate, they turn into silver eels. They're much more streamlined and they have bigger eyes which can see more blue light, much better for a marine environment. Anyway, once you've got your eels, you have to do away with them because unlike most fish, when people used to buy them from the fishmongers, you bought them live. Apparently they deteriorate quite quickly once they've been killed, so the only way to get them is to get them wriggling. Now, I once had to do away with some eels for my Jane Grigson blog. It was quite a traumatic experience. I really wanted to be as humane as possible. Killing animals for food, or well, or for any reason, <laughs> was not something I was used to. Spoiler alert, the advice was not good. Here's advice that I found. It was from La Russe Gastronomique. To kill an eel, seize it with a cloth and bang its head violently against a hard surface. To skin it, put a noose around the base and hang it up. Slit the skin in a circle just beneath the noose, pull away a small portion of the skin, turn it back, take hold of it with a cloth and pull down hard, like a big long fishy stocking. After reading that, I felt I didn't really have to read any further on the subject. But that is not what happens. Only years later did I spot this entry in Mrs. Beaton's book of household management, and she gives a rather more realistic account of what happens. She says, Tenacity of life in the eel. There is no fish so tenacious for life as this. After it is skinned and cut into pieces, the parts will continue to move for a considerable time, and no fish will live so long out of water. And that's exactly what was happening to me. It turns out they carry on moving about just as normal. After death, after a few whacks and a lot of distress, and the eels not stopping moving, I decided to cleave their heads from their bodies. Their bodies were happily swimming around without a head in the sink of water. Not only that, when I tried to move their dismembered heads, which were sat upon the chopping board, they would try and nip my fingers. It was awful. And they're still coming across as pretty creepy, aren't they? Once they had stopped wriggling and moving, and I did cook them, they had delicious tasting meat. It's very moist and gelatinous, like an extra delicious salmon. And there's no tricky bones. I could really see why they were so popular. However, not everyone agrees. The anonymous author of the 13th century manuscript, Le Menagier de Paris, offers this advice about eel. When it is finely cooked, serve it to your enemies, for it has nothing good about it. You can't please everyone, I suppose. But when it comes to cooking eel, I've done it a few times now, and I've found the best way is to cut it into lengths, brush with some oil, season with salt and pepper, and bake or roast it. In fact, make anything you like, except for jellied eel. It's the worst way to eat eel, in my opinion, but what do I know? That said, that doesn't mean you shouldn't visit the various eel shops if you're down in London, because in there you can get lovely poached eel with a parsley green sauce made from eel stock and a really nice beef and onion pie with a blob of mash. So yeah, just don't get the jellied eels. Sorry, folks, I just don't like them. 
These eel pie and mash houses, by the way, were just really a London invention and they cropped up in the 19th century and they took off just as the Thames became too polluted to support many eels. They were run by immigrant families such as the Manns family from Italy and the Cook family from Ireland. One of the cook shops on Broadway Market, Hackney, which I've been to, had to close mid-pandemic in December 2020 after serving up eel pie and mash and, of course, jelly deals for 120 years. The reason, according to the article, was just there's not enough EastEnders anymore. And I know I keep having a go at jelly deals, but it really is a shame because it's a bit of culture that we're losing. Hopefully the rest will hang on. But for me, the best way to eat eel is also the simplest because it requires no cooking. Pop down your fishmonger and get yourself some smoked eel. Then, whilst you're out, buy some very good brown bread and the best salted butter you can find. Whilst at the grocer's, get some good horseradish sauce and a lemon. Go home and butter slices of bread, pop a little eel fillet on your plate with a lemon wedge for squeezing over it and eat that eel with the bread and a blob of horseradish. It is divine. There are loads of blog posts and recipes on my blogs for eel and I've left some links in the show notes to some of the things I've talked about today if you want to know more. But that brings us to the end of episode two of my eel trilogy. A huge thank you again to medieval eel historian and meme maker extraordinary John Wyatt Greenlee, aka on Twitter, Surprised Eel Historian, where you can find him at GreenleeJW. Next week, we're going to be looking at some recent eel history when I meet Andrew Kerr of the Sustainable Eel Group. And we're going to look at just how this once common animal has gotten onto the critically endangered list. There's also been a recent spate of elver trafficking. And there's also the issue of Brexit and how that might just mess up the conservation effort altogether. It's time to go. As usual... If you have any questions, comments or queries about anything from this episode or any other episode in this podcast, please get in contact via email, neil at britishhistory.com or on Twitter at Neil Buttery or Instagram at doctor, that's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery. And as I've mentioned in other episodes, I'm hoping to do a bonus kind of post-bag stroke right to reply episode at the end of the season or maybe the start of the next So if there's something you'd like to add, or you have a food history question that you won't know the answer to, I am your man, hopefully. Also, support the podcast and blogs. Buy me a virtual coffee or pint, or start up a subscription. Go to the show notes for links and more information. But also, don't forget to like and subscribe, and tell your friends, and to leave comments or ratings. Until next time, have a great week, and I shall see you for the final episode of the season next Sunday. Cheerio!